Hi everyone, I'm Dave Monday, Lead Professional Officer for Mental Health at Unite the Union. I'm joined today by Andy Bell and we're going to talk about a new briefing that the Centre for Mental Health has launched. Trauma, Mental Health and Coronavirus, Supporting Healing and Recovery. Before we talk about this new report, Andy, can you introduce yourself and give some background about the work of the Centre? Yep, I'm uh, Andy and uh, Centre for Mental Health is an independent organisation. We've been around a number of years and our work is all about improving mental health for all and particularly tackling mental health inequalities by using evidence, carrying out research, learning from experience and and making sure we support innovation and improvement. And particularly now, of course, wanting to support everyone trying to to, uh, work on improving people's mental health through the current crisis. There's been lots of discussion about the impact that the coronavirus crisis is having and will continue to have on our mental health. What does this new report cover? So what we've done in this paper is really look at the evidence around trauma, because I think the more we look at this, the more we realise that what people are experiencing, both on an individual level for some people and a collective level in terms of us as a population, and I mean that globally as well as just, just within the UK or locally, is a kind of traumatic event. The trauma both of the virus itself and and, and the terrible losses of life around it, but also the trauma of being locked down, of losing livelihoods, of of potentially for some people feeling very unsafe, and indeed the traumas of of, of bereavement for some people, and and of course folk working in, in health services and care services who are experiencing the trauma of treating people and becoming unwell themselves in some cases. So what we're wanting to do through this briefing is really explore that evidence and look at what that tells us about how we can support people, uh, what we can do to to reduce the risk of this terrible situation creating long-term difficulties for people's mental health, but also how we can help with that recovery effort and help people to heal once uh, some of the most acute phases is passed. So the report talks about a trauma-informed approach. For those unaware of what this means, can you help clarify? Yeah, so a trauma-informed approach is really about understanding that for people that have experienced a traumatic event, and remember, lots of people have, it's quite common, you know, traumatic events are things that happen to lots of people in their lives from early childhood through to working life and indeed any point in between that those traumatic events do have an effect on your mental health. It doesn't mean that everyone who experiences a traumatic event experiences post-traumatic stress disorder afterwards, but it does mean that the more traumas you experience, the more at risk you are, and that can have very profound effects on your mental health, including years later, not necessarily straight away. And what a trauma-informed approach does is it comes with the understanding that this is the backdrop for many people. So particularly in mental health services, and again for service users and staff alike, if people have experienced traumatic events, then any situation which reminds you of that trauma or brings that trauma back or creates feelings that were the same as you had at that traumatic time can make your mental health much worse. And so it's about creating an environment where you prioritise safety, you prioritise healing, you try to make people feel safe, you make people feel secure. You build relationships that that help people to feel that there's someone they can rely on and trust. And you give people much more control over the environment they're in and what life is like for them. So it's really trying to identify that if we bring the evidence of what we know works in terms of being trauma informed into the everyday routines, not just in health services, but in care services, in schools, in prisons, in any other place people are, including workplaces, 
that actually we can help that healing process much more. And crucially, being trauma-informed doesn't do any harm. There are no negative side effects to being trauma-informed. So if people don't need it, it doesn't hurt them either. So it's something that really is a kind of benefit to everybody, but particularly helps the safety of those who have really struggled. One of the criticisms to the discussions about the mental health impact of COVID-19 is how a natural human response to trauma is being medicalised. Is this something that your organisation is concerned about? Yeah, I think it's, it's very easy to try to kind of put a diagnosis on people really early or indeed to try and offer uh, interventions that we know can do as much harm as good. So, for example, someone who's been working on a ward um, or in a very dangerous environment, you need to make sure that you work with them in a way which is safe and you don't end up doing interventions which can actually kind of enhance the trauma they've experienced. And we certainly don't want to go around putting labels on people. I think for the time being, you know, there are lots of surveys showing that people's mental health is worse at the moment. And in some ways you think, well, yes, of course, we're all going through this national traumatic event. We're all anxious. We're all stressed out. Of course, our mental health is worse. But for a lot of people, we know that that uh, heightened anxiety and stress might continue. And again, for people that have experienced the trauma themselves, that's more likely to be the case. And for people whose lives have been traumatic before now, the risk is even greater. So this isn't about medicalizing a normal response to a really stressful situation. It's about saying that the inequalities that we've all observed that were there before are probably going to be greater afterwards. People who are at greater risk before will be at even more risk afterwards. And so we just need to have that understanding. And in a sense, if you do take a trauma-informed response, you potentially reduce the risk of people needing more intervention later by stopping that escalation for somebody who then becomes very unwell as a result of not getting the right support early on. Through COVID-19, I think it's accepted that we've all suffered, but have we all suffered the same? I think all the evidence says not, doesn't it? So we're looking at the moment at what we can say about the mental health impacts of of COVID-19, and we'll be reporting on that in, in the next couple of weeks. But I think what's becoming immediately apparent, both in terms of experiencing the negative effects of the current situation, which aren't unique to mental health, but generally, there are huge inequalities, and those inequalities are, by and large, the same inequalities that we see in so-called normal times. So we know, for example, that people whose livelihoods are precarious will be experiencing more worries, more stress now than people who have relatively secure work or financial situation. We know that people who don't feel safe at home, uh, who, who aren't safe at home, have higher risks both to their safety now and their mental health later. And of course, we know that people who are living with long-term conditions, both physical and mental health conditions, again, there's a greater risk to mental health because of those messages of vulnerability and the prospect of longer spent under restrictions than people who don't have long-term conditions. And of course, we are seeing huge disparities in terms of the uh, race equality dimensions to this, of black and Asian people particularly experiencing heightened levels of both the severe effects of coronavirus, but also sadly, uh, death from it too. And that, of course, is most marked amongst health workers. And I think, you know, some of the statistics that we're seeing and the experiences that we're hearing about are so shocking and so distressing. And of course, all of these are inequalities that require a response. 
We can't just take them for granted. It's very easy to see these gaps and these appalling differences as somehow inevitable and unavoidable. And I think we really have to challenge that. We, we shouldn't see the inverse care law as being something that's fixed and unbreakable. We have to try and break it. Just while you were talking about inequalities, I know the Centre for Mental Health has done uh, an equality commission. How is that responding to the COVID-19 crisis? So we're in the process of uh, an 18-month investigation chaired by Liz Stace and with a group of people that are working with us to really understand what lies behind mental health inequalities and what some of the solutions might be. We're most of the way through that process now, so inevitably we're going to be looking at, at the current situation as part of that picture. I think what we're seeing in the first instance, as I say, is that the inequalities that were there in the first place in mental health are probably just going to be magnified at the current time. But it does mean that when we produce our final report, it will be in the light of what's happening now. And that might help not just to identify some of the problems, but also think about some of the solutions. And I think where we're seeing, for example, the mobilisation of community resources, of things that were believed to be impossible before suddenly happening, then I think we can take some heart and see some positives. It's really interesting that for many years, We've talked about how the benefits system treats people with poor mental health in really quite terrible ways through the use of assessments, through the use of conditions and sanctions for people who are out of work. A lot of those have been very markedly taken away or reduced. And I think that gives us an opportunity to say, well, did we really need them in the first place? All the evidence suggests they harm health and do nothing for people's economic well-being. So is this a time to, to draw a line under that and say, let's see what broader economic and social changes could take place to enhance people's mental health and reduce inequalities longer term. Our Applied Psychology National Committee has talked about the moral injury associated with COVID-19. So the moral injury is the profound psychological distress which results from actions or the lack of them which violates one's moral or ethical code. Has the centre looked at this issue? We haven't looked at it, but we've certainly been looking at the literature as part of our, of our overall review of the situation, and, and it's clearly part of it. And I think there's no doubt that for people, particularly working in, in the health and care system, there's both that sense of yourself having to be part of making decisions or of choices being made, which you don't feel are right. But there's also that sense which comes out in the briefing we've published about institutional betrayal of feeling let down by governments and, and people in positions of power of a kind of unnecessary suffering, if you like. And I think we know, again, one of the things that really magnifies the risk of poor mental health is experiences of inequality and discrimination. And so I think, again, that sense of wanting to have trust in the people making decisions about our lives and knowing that you yourself are part of a system where good decisions are made is really important for mental health. And so I think it's undoubtedly going to be something that is not unique to people in the health system. System, I suspect in the care system that will be quite significant also given what we're seeing now in terms of certainly the residential sector and some of the risks there. So it's certainly something we need to be mindful of. It will be part of the picture I'm sure and how we help people to recover from that will be really really important. Does the report have any solutions and observations about what the process of recovery might look like? And when you answer this question, just think about how Unite members who work in mental health services could help and contribute. Yeah, and, and again, this, this is very much about having a multi-layered approach. So part of it is about how government responds and, and how people running the NHS at a kind of national and local level respond. 
but it is inevitably also about individual kind of what what happens at that very localized level and we don't have all the answers and, and i'm certainly not going to pretend we do but i think if if you have that basic understanding of trauma then thinking about how you create a sense of safety for people how you understand the basic concept around what this is all about and how you think about, well, what is the environment people will be returning to work in or those who are still working, particularly in the health and care system, how we make sure that those people are supported properly, that they do feel safe. Inevitably, questions around PPE will come up around that, about that that sense of safety you can't, but but um, also about what that means in terms of when we start to reduce the current restrictions, in what way do you kind of return to a more normal way of being with one another with all the current kind of social distancing and very isolating experiences. So there's clearly a long way to go. We don't have easy answers to this, but I think crucially it does come down to making sure that we create an environment in care homes, hospitals, community teams, primary care, wherever people are working, where you feel it's okay to raise concerns, where you feel that you are being looked after and treated in a way which is respectful. We know safety is a real concern at the moment and there are no guarantees of it, but that you feel that everything that can be done is being done to protect you and of course that that is translated to people using the service as well and that sense of justice of just process will be really important for that i'd recommend anyone read the report when i read it there was a few there's a few different sections that i pulled out and really hit home for me so i just want to ask specifically about a couple of them the report talks about how normally recovery is played out through the relationships that exist within families communities and workplaces what will the impact be of the current lockdown have on this yeah, I mean, I think this this is really interesting, isn't it? Because, of course, everyone's experiencing lockdown differently. For some people, it might be a quite secure place to be. If you're in a home where you've got good positive relationships, where you look after each other, there are certainly examples of children and young people, for example, who find school a really hostile environment, whose mental health might be improved considerably by being at home and being in a relatively safe place. Of course, they're going to have to return to school. And so I think there is that issue about First of all, how we protect people now who are unsafe at home, sadly, who don't feel secure. But I think there's also how do you create an environment which is welcoming when people are going back into that kind of more normal life, whatever that looks like. That's, again, where a trauma-informed approach can be really important to think about, well, how do schools resume? You know, what do you do when kids go back and some may be behaving extra bad because of what they've experienced? So how does a school manage that with its behaviour policies, for example, with an understanding that that's going to happen, that children may act out, they may behave really badly as a kind of consequence of the distress and the anxiety that they've been feeling. And I think, again, you can see that kind of played out in any kind of environment where people are going to be going back to very busy spaces having spent a lot of time quite isolated. The report also says the literature on disasters underlines the importance of bearing witness as a community to what has happened, grieving what has been lost and making shared meaning from the crisis. Can you tell us more about this and also share any thoughts on how this might also apply to, for example, different professional groups? 
Yeah, and again, this this is an area where it's very hard to nail down a single answer. But I think it is very much about understanding that we've all experienced, in some ways, the same thing. We've all lived through this pandemic. We've all been part of it. Nobody has been unaffected by it, particularly in a health and care environment. People have been affected by it in very profound ways that affects both their working and, and personal life in multiple ways. And so I think part of it is just recognising that. And, and it's recognising not only are people's experiences different, but what people find helpful is different. Some people want to talk about it a lot and process it and process it out loud and have ways in which they might want to do that. Other people will just not want to. And in a sense, it's about allowing that that's okay, that, that, that you can't impose a single model for how we're going to deal with the psychological impacts of this on an entire population because people literally need different things. And so creating that space for people to uh, certainly grieve lost colleagues and family members which inevitably will be a part, sadly, of, of what will happen in health and care services as a result of this. But acknowledging that people will want to do that in different ways that have meaning to them. And that requires some quite careful management because you don't want to impose a single right way of doing things on everybody. I know we can't do full justice to the report in the conversation that we've had today, but hopefully it gives people a real flavour of why they should finish listening to us, head to the Centre for Mental Health website and download a copy. Obviously, I'm on the distribution list for work that the centre does. If anyone isn't on that list, can they make sure that they hear about future updates from the centre? a lovely question to ask so you can go to our website and sign up for our email bulletin if you do you get a monthly email from us with some of the highlights of what we've been doing it's not intrusive it's not spam it won't try and sell you stuff but it just gives you a monthly update from us about some of the new reports we've done some of the initiatives we're starting and some of the blogs that we've shared for example with people talking about their lived experience and at the moment a lot of those are about the current crisis as you would expect so do sign up and do get updates from us it's lovely to be able to share what we're doing but also get people's feedback and, and hear what people are interested in out there because our work's only as good as the people we interact with in in, in the world of, of mental health and, and more broadly. And just before you go Andy I just wanted to highlight that Equally Well UK, another work that you're involved in, I think they've just released a really important document today as well so do you want to just take a few moments to tell people about that as well? Yep. So Equally Well is an initiative that we've been running for about a year and a half now with lots of other partners, including Unite, who are one of our brilliant members. And it's a collaborative to improve physical health for people living with a mental illness. We know that there is already a very big gap in terms of life expectancy for people with a mental illness. We fear that current circumstances certainly won't help that, certainly won't make it any better. And so Equally Well is about bringing together everyone to do their part to improve physical health and reduce those inequalities and everyone taking action in terms of what they can do knowing that other people are doing the same rather than just waiting for someone else to come along and help as part of that we've, we've been lucky enough to be able to produce a resource for people living in current circumstances with a mental illness about looking after your physical health while you're at home and we know this is really really challenging for people it's not patronizing we're not trying to teach people the basics that are really impossible to do in the circumstances people are living in but it's about providing people with some links some resources some advice some helpful tips based on lived as well as professional experience so please do have a look at equally well uk if the organization you're working in isn't yet a member 
please join up, please become part of this movement. We want everyone in, in the health and care world to take equally well principles to, to ensure that we have a rights-based approach to the physical health of people living with a mental illness. Unite has already taken an amazing lead in it, in, in really kind of being one of our most active members of Equally Well. And, and uh, hopefully uh, the organisation you're working can do, do, it, do its bit too. Yeah, just to absolutely endorse that message, Andy, and you know, if colleagues out there aren't uh, a part of Equally Well UK, then don't hold back. Thanks for the time that you spent with us today, Andy. And please do pass on our best wishes to all your colleagues at the Centre for Mental Health. And just to say thank you for the work that they're doing during the COVID-19 crisis. I've certainly witnessed the uh, the work that's being done and, it, and it's certainly hugely valuable. So do pass on our thanks from Unite. Thank you very much. And thank you for what you're doing. I think you're providing a really important voice and it's always a pleasure working with you.